today is the first day of our 2023 summer seven-day session. It's the 7th of January. And um, for the first few days of the session, we're going to be um, reading from The Unborn, The Life and Teaching of Zen Master Banke. This is translated and with an introduction by Norman Waddell. We're going to start off with um, biographical material, uh, have a little bit more of this than we often do for the, for the Chinese masters. Banke, of course, is a more recent Japanese master, so we'll probably um, not get through all the material in one Taisho. Banke Yotaku was born in 1622. So he's, I think it's about 100 years roughly uh, earlier than um, Master Hakuan. His father, Sugawara Dosetsu, was originally from the island of Shikoku, and for generations the family ancestors had been physicians of samurai rank in the service of the ruling Awa clan. For reasons now not known, Dosetsu resigned his post and, as a masterless samurai or ronin, crossed over the inland sea to the province of Bichu, where he married. After moving twice more, he settled finally in Hamada, where he presumably gained a livelihood through the practice of medicine. Banke was one of the nine children born to him, the fourth of five sons. His boyhood name was Muchi, which translates roughly as don't fall behind. When Banke was 10, his father died, leaving the duty of raising him and the other children to his wife and his eldest son, Masayasu, who continued the family tradition as a practitioner of Chinese medicine. The records of Banke's life reveal that he was an intelligent, highly sensitive child, but at the same time rather unruly and uncommonly strong-willed. His mother told him that even from the young age of two or three, he showed an aversion to death. The family found that by talking about death or pretending to be dead, they could stop his crying. Not stopping it, not because he would be happy about it, because of, but because he would be sh shocked. Later, when he made a nuisance of himself by leading the neighborhood children in mischief, the same methods were used to bring him into line. Every year, on the fifth day of the fifth month, the occasion of the boys' festival, the village youths 
took part in stone-throwing contests, dividing into two sides and hurling small stones at one another from opposite sides of a nearby river. This annual event had been held in the di district for over 500 years, since the Heian period, in order to inculcate the manly virtues in the young boys. We are told that whichever side Banke was on invariably won because he would never retreat, no matter how hard the stones rained down on him. Get a little bit of a, like a, a vignette of patriarchal Japan with the story. of a sort of macho prowess, and certainly not all of us may may relate to this story. And it's important to understand that its 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 point, the fact that Banke was would never retreat. Um, there are many other ways of never retreating and never giving up um, that can, yeah, if we have these traits in our personality, they can be helpful. But it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a good good at uh, stone throwing fights. At the age of eleven, less than a year after his father's death, he was sent to the village school, where he took an immediate interest in his studies. But the calligraphy lessons held after school at a temple in a neighbouring village were a different matter. For these, he harboured an intense dislike. To avoid the tedious monotony of copying and recopying Chinese characters from the teacher's copybook, he made a practice of always returning home well before the class was over. Although Masayasu took his young brother to task repeatedly for this, his scolding had apparently little effect. In returning home, Bankai had to cross a river. The, his brother instructed the ferryman not to allow him to board if he should come along early. You can sort of sense this elder brother's desperation in trying to rein in his, his younger brother here. Bankai was not easily deterred, however. The ground must continue under the water, he declared, and he strode right into the stream, struggling along over the bottom until he merged breathless at the far bank. Very stubborn boy. But wanting to avoid further conflict with his brother, Banke thought of committing suicide. He had heard that eating poisonous spiders was fatal, so he swallowed a mouthful of them and shut himself up inside a small Buddhist shrine to await the end. Many hours later, seeing that he was still alive, he abandoned the attempt and went home. I guess we can be thankful that the, that the, the spiders didn't kill him. But we'll say, see in this story um, the intensity of the the, the conflict that, that had developed between him and his, his older brother, which would have been especially painful to um, young men immersed in Confucian 
teachings where filial piety is so incredibly important and central. Most of us don't um, contemplate suicide as small children or as children, but um, just reading this now, I had a had a, uh, a, a flash of memory of um, around the same age um, leaving home, <laughs> deciding I was going to leave home, and actually just going up into some bushes just on the side of the of my parents' house driveway. Uh, but but it just gives a sense. The memory gives me a sense of how how um, intense and and um, all encompassing uh, these conflicts can feel to a, to a small child. At the village school, Banke was subjected to the same curriculum given to all Tokugawa schoolboys, the recitation of Confucian texts repeated over and over until they came automatically to the lips. One day, the class was taking up the great learning. This is one of the four um, books of Confucianism. And the teacher came to the central words the way of great learning lies in clarifying bright virtue. I'll say that again. The way of great learning lies in clarifying bright virtue. Banke interrupted the teacher. What is bright virtue? he asked. The teacher, repeating the glosses given in one of the traditional commentaries, answered, the intrinsic nature of good in each person. It's a little bit like um, the quite well-known uh, teaching of Chogyam Trungpa, who, who talked about uh, putting trust in our basic sanity, our basic goodness, uh, our in intrinsic health. Banke then asked what the intrinsic nature of man was and was told it's his fundamental nature. So pretty circular answer there. Then what is that, he persisted. The ultimate truth of heaven, replied the teacher. None of these answers satisfied Banke. A deeper explanation was needed. And even say there wasn't an explanation that it was needed, but but the thing itself that he was searching for, not satisfied with these various descriptions that he was being given. He wanted to know what right virtue really meant in terms of his own practical experience. This questioning marks the awakening of religious doubt in his consciousness which was most likely already disposed in that direction because of the recent loss of his father. Banke himself spoke of this critical juncture 60, 60 years later as the beginning of his search to discover the Buddha mind. In any case, his questioning of bright virtue soon grew 
into an all-consuming passion. Fired by unquellable doubts, he now embarked upon an urgent and relentless religious quest that would occupy the next 14 years and determine the future of his entire life. At the beginning, he took every opportunity that presented itself to ask others for help. A group of Confucian scholars whom he pressed for an answer they were at a loss to give offered the advice that he might try the Zen priests because, quotes, they know about such knotty problems, unquote. But there were no Zen temples in the immediate vicinity, so he was unable to follow their advice. And we should remember here that he was still a child, 10 or 11. Banke had to content himself with questioning more Confucianists and such Buddhist priests as he found in temples nearby. In addition, he attended every sermon, lecture meeting, and other religious gathering that came to his intention, attention. Afterward, he would run home and tell his mother what had been said. And there's a, there's a footnote here about his mother. That she spent, she spent the latter half of her life as a Buddhist nun, so presumably after all her children were grown up, uh, living in a small temple, uh, which Banke always found time to uh, go to to visit her. She lived to the age of 90, dying in her son's arms in 1680. The extent of Banke's devotion to his mother and his deep commitment to the principles of filial piety, albeit from his own Zen standpoint, can be felt throughout his Teshos. In an entry in the Gyogoki, we read, Banke once spoke in a sermon of the sense of filial piety that he felt as a boy, which was responsible, he said, for his entry into religious life in the first place and for his subsequent achievement of enlightenment. Real filial devotion, he said, should not stop at merely caring for one's parents. A truly filial child should clarify the way of deliverance so as to be able to make his parents realize it too. This, this is um, a way of, of, of uh, integrating this, this deep teaching of filial piety that is so important in, in Asian uh, countries and the, the way of the bodhisattva, seeing that they, they're, they're not two. We can, we can also imagine that, that um, Banke running home to tell his mother about his latest lecture that he's been to may have been a factor in her own decision to uh, become a nun later in life.
but such inquiries brought him no glimpse of understanding. He was unable to find a single person who could offer him any guidance in the right direction. Thoroughly discouraged, he wandered about like a stray mountain lamb, aimlessly and alone. These are quotes from his own teaching. Now even his schoolwork lost all interest for him, a development so displeasing to his already long-suffering brother that Banke was finally banished from the family house for good. Still only 11 years old, Banke was thrown solely on his own resources. Fortunately, a close friend of the family, taking pity on him, stepped forward and offered him the use of a small hut in the hills behind his house. And we, we can imagine that possibly this was um, an arrangement between the brother and the family um, friend, thinking, oh, well, we'll, we'll humour the boy and, and then he'll, he'll, uh, he'll come right, you give him, give him a bit of leeway but he'll grow sick of the, the, the harsh life that he was um, going to have to live in order to undertake his search. But um, he didn't give up, as the tale shows as we continue. Banke, if the records are to be believed, does not seem to have been unduly troubled by this turn of events. On the contrary, he seems to have welcomed it as a chance to devote himself to his problem, secure from all outside distraction. Accepting the neighbor's offer, he wrote the words shugyo an, or practice hermitage, on a plank of wood, propped it up outside the entrance and settled down in earnest to devote himself to his own clarification of bright virtue. And we can... Um, perhaps assume also that um, this, this fram, family friend would have been um, taking food to him in his hermitage. The records are more or less silent regarding the next several years. At one point, it seems, he spent time at a temple of the Shin sect located close by. There he must have learned about that school's practice of the Nembutsu, the calling of the name of Amida Buddha. Namu... Is that how's it go? Namu Amida Butsu. Namu Amida Butsu. Namu Amida Butsu. Banke lived for a while... Oh, he says, um, a reference in his Taisho's to long sessions devoted to the constant practice of the Nembutsu, days on end in a Nembutsu Samadhi, perhaps belongs to this, this period. In his 15th year, Banke lived for a while in a Shingon temple, where he presumably familiarized himself to some extent with the teachings and practices of esoteric Buddhism. The head priest of this temple, impressed by the young boy's resolution, tried to induce him to stay on as his disciple. Banke refused the offer. 
neither the Shin nor the Shingon sects were to his liking. It's um, being urged to stay on and, and uh, uh, become a disciple was, is, is a, a motif, you could say, that appears in the story of the Buddha too, where the two different um, teachers that he uh, trained under both uh, invited him to stay, seeing his, seeing his qualities and his potential. The next year, having turned 16, he walked the 20 miles that separated Hamada from the city of Ako to visit the Zuyoji, a temple of the Zen sect that had been built 22 years before for the incumbent abbot, Umpo Zenjo. Umpo belonged to the Rinzai tradition, his specific affiliation being the mainstream of that school, which traced its descent from the great Zen masters of the Kamakura period, Daiyo and Daito. Seventy years old when Banke visited him in 1638, Umpo earned a wide reputation as a stern taskmaster who demanded total dedication from his monks. A biographical notice of Umpo included in Banke's records tell us that few were bold-hearted enough to enter his chambers and they usually fled before too long. So not so surprising really. This is pretty much the, the mold of a, of a Rinzai master. Fierce. Right off, Banke told Umpo of the difficulty he was having in trying to come to terms with bright virtue. Umpo replied that if he wanted to discover what it meant, he would have to practice sazen, seated meditation. There must have been something about Umpo and the Zen teachings and practice he embodied that struck a responsive chord in Banke because then and there he asked Umpo to give him ordination as a Buddhist monk. Umpo, no doubt pleased to grant this request, coming as it did from such an obviously determined young man, immediately shaved Banke's head. He gave him the religious name Yotaku, which means long polishing, uh, implied in this long polishing of the mind gem, the jewel of mind. Banke, the name by which he is best known, he required in his early 30s when he served as a term as a teacher in the training halls, halls of Myoshinji in Kyoto. The, this uh, immediate ordination wouldn't be the normal practice, but um, clearly Umpon, Umpo was... Um, making an exception because of the quality, the qualities that he could see in, in Banke. His, his um, already highly developed um, devotion to inquiry. Oh, 
part of the Tibetan teacher we talked about yesterday put it, um, carefully looking into the naked essence of one's own mind. Although we have no specific information about the way which Umpo instructed Banke, we can reasonably assume that Banke was subjected to a demanding training program during the three years he was under Umpo's guidance. Zazen was, of course, the chief ingredient of training. Banke probably did some work on koans as well, although no clear evidence reveals this and there is some indication that Umpo may not have laid the same stress on koans as his contemporaries did. At 19, after three years at Zuyoji, Banke set out, heading east, on an extended journey around the country that eventually took him throughout the Kyoto-Osaka Kyoto, area and as far west as the island of Kyushu. Once he took leave of Ompo, he had now no fixed address. He stayed in temples, but more often he lived a solitary life in rude, self-made huts, or frequently, to judge from his records, he merely slept in the open. The privations of this life were great, but he faced them with a more than Spartan disdain for hunger and extremes of season and temperature. He is reported to have lived among beggars for several years, first under the Gojo Bridge in Kyoto and later beside Tenmangu Shrine in Osaka, where he slept with nothing but reeds for a covering. Um, the, uh, one of the great teachers mentioned earlier of the Rinzai in Japan, Daito, also um, was said to have lived under... Uh, a bridge in Kyoto. Um, so again, this this element is is um, could of course be somewhat mythologized in line with previous um, masters. We don't know. From a fo the following account of Banke himself, we can form a picture of what his life was like at this time. Although the disciple who recites it adds that it tells but one ten thousandth of the actual circumstances. So this is somebody reporting what Banke said. I pressed myself without mercy, draining myself mentally and physically. At times I practiced deep in the mountains, in places completely cut off from all human contact. I fashioned primitive shelters out of paper, pulled that over me, and did zazen seated inside. Sometimes I would make a small lean-to by pulling up two walls of thick paper boards and sit in solitary darkness inside, doing zazen, never lying down to rest even for a moment. Whenever I heard of some teacher whom I thought might be able to give me advice, I went immediately to visit him. I lived that way for several years. There were few places in the country I did not set foot. He then, in, in 
1545, after four years of this uh, very rigorous uh, practice, he returned to, to uh, Umpol. He was now um, 23 and still felt he was no closer to resolving his doubts about the bright virtue. He is said to have been weeping in discouragement as he told Umpapo how he had been unable to find a single person in all his travels who could give him the kind of help he wanted. Umpo's reply was, it's your desire to find someone that keeps you from your goal. He was telling Banke that he would never be able to achieve enlightenment as long as he persisted in searching for an answer outside himself. We, many of us have this, this um, orientation that is probably not fully conscious of, of wanting to find someone or some community which, which will, will fix things, that will give us the key to life, you could say. And of course, as long as we have any kind of idea in our head about what we're looking for, then that's limited, and if we're looking for it, we won't find the truth because we'll be looking for this concept we have of the truth. Somebody um, in the insight school gave gave me a T-shirt which had uh, on it, meditation, it's not what you think. The words seem to have had their intended effect. Banke promptly left again. This time he stayed nearby, building a hermitage in the countryside to the north of Akko Castle. As if to underscore his determination to accomplish his end entirely on his own, he now isolated himself completely from contact with the outside, walling himself up within his tiny dwelling. He sat constantly, day and night, dedicating himself to the ever greater, with ever greater urgency to Zazen, resolved, just as the Buddha before him had been, not to get up until he had found the way through. Eventually, his buttocks and thighs became inflamed and swollen from the constant contact with the bare rock floor. They began to fester. Still, he kept sitting. He gave up eating for weeks at a time. He threw cold water over himself whenever he felt even the slightest approach of the demons of sleep. Here is one of several descriptions we have of life in his hut. And it's, it's interesting for, for the, um, the practicalities of being, of being sealed up inside a, a hut. It says, the room, about 10 feet square, resembled nothing so much as a prison cell. There was only one small opening, just a large enough for an arm to pass through. The door he plastered shut with mud, 
so that no one could enter to bother him. Food was passed to him through the hole in the wall twice each day. After he had finished eating it, he placed the bowl outside the opening once again. A privy was arranged just below the wall so that he could relieve himself from the inside of the room through a small aperture made for that purpose. <laughs> You'd have to make sure you were pretty good aim, I think, to make that work. The, the, um, the Zen literature is quite full of, of um, stories like this, of the, um, the great lengths that, that these masters went to to um, awaken. And this um, sealing oneself up in a hermitage is, is still practiced in the Tibetan tradition, at least. Um, where where lamas will be um, in in retreat for years, but it's just we just these come with a caveat. They they can be inspiring and and they can goad us on to go to to um, push our own boundaries, but we shouldn't just copy the outer form and think that somehow if we if we don't sleep or if we don't move from our mat for a certain period of time, then we're, we're proving something. This, this kind of um, devotion comes out of the longing for the truth and um, is a consequence of that, that longing rather than um, necessarily evidence of it. When I was working on Mu, I heard from from a Dharma brother. He he described what he, his week, the week that he had leading up to his Kensho experience. Of course, he shouldn't have been talking about it because it's not usually not helpful, or pretty much always not helpful to others to hear these things. But um, I decided to do what she, what he had done, which not slept for a week for the week of Sishin, and. Uh, at one point, I got a note from one of the monitors urging me to get some rest and get and, and eat, and because so, I was looking so awful. Uh, I'm not actually. I think it was something I had to do. I had to go through that to order to find my own way, but it it was also. Um, really uh, only valuable in terms of my, my learning that, that it wasn't the, the way that I needed to proceed at that point. So you can imagine um, Panke sealed up inside his, his 10 foot square room The long years of struggle had weakened him both physically and mentally. He contracted tuberculosis. He tells of it himself in this famous passage from his Taishos. My utter neglect of health and the years of physical punishment finally took its toll and came to a head in a serious illness. My condition steadily worsened. I grew weaker and weaker by the day. 
whenever I spat, gouts of bloody sputum as big as thumbnails appeared. Once I spat against a wall, and the globules stuck and slid to the ground in bright red beads. The illness reached a critical stage. For a whole week, I was unable to swallow anything except some thin rice broth. The, then the, probably his concerned um, disciples who were, who were feeding him this rice broth through the hole in the, in the hermitage wall called in a doctor. And um, the doctor who examined him is reported to have thrown aside his medicine spoon. In other words, basically um, conceding defeat that, that he, Banke was past the point where, where um, his medicine could be of any help. Banke was now resigned to dying. But with things at their blackest, his dramatic personal struggle to attain enlightenment came to an end. I felt a strange sensation in my throat. I spat against a wall. A mass of black phlegm, large as a soapberry, rolled down the side. Suddenly, just at that instant, I realized that what was I realized what it was that had escaped me until now. All things are perfectly resolved in the unborn. All things are perfectly resolved in the unborn. After 14 years of credible hardship, he had achieved a decisive enlightenment, his doubts and uncertainties disappearing like a dream. Immediately he felt his strength begin to return, his appetite improved almost miraculously, and with it, his health. Again, these, these stories of, of spontaneous recovery from illness are also peppered through the, the Zen literature. Of course, there may have been multiple deaths of, of um, practitioners in in proportion to the number of these spontaneous recoveries, but um, they are they are a feature of the of the stories around um, Zen practitioners, and um, they're not not so hard to understand when we when we think in terms of the uh, body and mind, not two. Soon after this, according to the accounts given in two biographical records, another enlightenment occurred, occasioned when the fragrant smell of plum blossoms was borne to him on a nearby stream. And a little bit more um, aesthetically pleasing than gobs of bloody sputum falling down the wall. Going down the wall. One version of, the, of his biography links these two experiences together. The master, frustrated in all his attempts to resolve the feeling of doubt which weighed so heavily on his mind, became deeply disheartened. Signs of serious illness appeared. He began to cough up bloody bits of sputum. He grew steadily worse until death seemed imminent. He said to himself, Everyone has to die. 
I'm not concerned about that. My regret is dying with the great matter I've been struggling with all these years since I was a small boy, still unresolved. His eyes flushed with hot tears. His breath, breast heaved violently. It seemed his, drip, his ribs would burst. Then, just at that moment, enlightenment came to him, like the bottom falling out of a bucket. Immediately, his self began to return, but still he seemed unable to express what he had realized. Then one day, in the early hours of the morning, the scent of plum blossoms carried to him in on the morning air reached his nostrils. At that instant, all attachments and ob obstacles were swept from his mind once and for all. The doubts that had been plaguing him ceased to exist. So these two experiences changed everything. And he, and once he got strong enough, once his health was um, good enough for him to travel, he made his way back to Zuyoji to tell Umpo what had happened. And of course, um, Umpo was, was overjoyed. That is the marrow of Bodhidharma's bones, he is said to have cried. From now on, no one will, anywhere will be able to touch you, he said, acknowledging Bunke's understanding. When he says no, when he says no one will anywhere will be able to touch you. It, he, what he's meaning is that with with this experience, um, Banke has become imperturbable. No matter what might happen, he won't be shaken by it. He told him, however, that he should obtain verification from other masters. Gudo Toshoku, the most highly regarded Rinzai Zen teacher of the day, was the man that Umpo recommended. Banke, who was now 26, proceeded to the province of Mino, present Gifu Prefecture, where Gudo's temple Dai Senji was located, uh, but unfortunately, um, Gudo wasn't there. He spent a good amount of his time traveling around to all his um, sub-temples teaching, and uh, he was away in Edo when Banke um, came to visit him. So Banke then, then decided he would try his luck with some of the other Zen teachers in the vicinity, but he was pretty disappointed by them. None, none of them uh, were able to give him the confirmation that he was after. So um, he then spends um, more time in hermitages. Um, different places around the hills of, of Minon, which were forested. Um, and the, the, the writer of this introduction says, he applied himself to the important post-enlightenment phase of his training. And this, this is considered very important to, to um, integrate the insight 
that one has in an inner waking into one's understanding. And he apparently spent some of his time considering what would he would how he would teach as he as uh, in in the future to um, respond to people's needs and to teach in a way that people could understand and and um, make real for themselves. Then. Um, in 1651, when he was still engaged in this period of reflection, news reached him of a Chinese priest called Dosha, um, who had, was visiting at the port of Nagasaki. And so Umpo um, organized to, to travel to Nagasaki to see what this Chinese priest might have to offer and whether he could confirm his understanding. Just um, my, the question might arise hearing this is why why the need to seek verification? Why did Umpo suggest this to, to Banke? And surely the experience itself is, is in itself verification. And that is true in a certain sense. But this tradition we are part of um, emphasizes being tested by a um, someone with insight, um, and it has to do with this the long view of, of um, passing down the Dharma from generation to generation, bringing one's insight to others. This is not a private thing. It's this is what the transmission, the stories about the transmission, are all about. Um, It's having this one experience, this experience for oneself, and also being able to um, demonstrate it. And this this aspect of uh, the tradition helps. It's not it's not perfect, but it helps to guard against incomplete realization, so that the the whole tradition doesn't. Decay. Of course, it does decay at times, and we have somebody come along like Master Hakuin who revives it. But this this importance of it not just being something one proclaims to one's uh, oneself of, of having uh, had this experience, but it is is confirmed by a teacher with insight. Well, 